Well, today's scripture, without a doubt, is one of the most difficult and confusing parables that Jesus ever told. You may have not even heard about it before because in some circles it is totally obscure and difficult. The story has confounded theologians and Bible scholars, and in this story it seems on the surface that Jesus praises a business manager for his dishonesty and his shady business practices. But why would Jesus tell a story like this? Can such a story illustrate a good truth for us or a spiritual insight? We read from our scripture, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This is from the Common English Bible, a translation I think provides a little bit more clarity. In your Bibles, you may see that there are titles above different sections of Scripture. And some Bibles give this section of Scripture the name, the dishonest manager, or the unrighteous steward, or the shrewd manager. Let's Look at this scripture passage, Luke chapter 16, 1 through 13. Jesus also said to his disciples, a rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called the manager in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration because you can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? When I am removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their homes, their houses. One by one, the manager sent for each person who owed his master money. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Take your contract, sit down quickly and write, or excuse me, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager said, take your contract, sit down quickly and write 450 gallons. Then the manager said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. He said, take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world, Jesus continued, are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcome into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much. And the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or... You will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Let us pray. God, open our ears to hear your word so that this difficult passage can be understood. Open our minds so that we can apply your good truth in our life, O Lord, and open up our hearts to receive your love so that we can be generous bearers of your grace and generosity. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old saying that tells us, honesty is the best policy. You know, I try to instill that into my children, and when I ask them if they brush their teeth before bed, and they say, oh yeah, I say, is that true? Are you being honest? And if you're not, you won't be in trouble. And I always try to enforce that honesty, honesty policy with them. But not everyone abides by this honesty policy. You know, I had a friend growing up who would tell us wild stories of things that he experienced and saw, and over time, we friends who heard these stories learned that we couldn't trust what he was saying because he would tell stories about meeting professional athletes or meeting actors or seeing some police chase that the police asked him to help, us, help him with. That we got a sense that our friend wasn't giving us the full truth. So we decided to give him a nickname because we learned that his stories often told a bit of the truth. So we called our friend Quarter Truth Man because <laughs> it seemed like whatever he said, there was a quarter of the truth in his fictitious story. I've often wondered what the manager from Luke 16 was called by his friends, his business associates. Did they call him liar, cheat, heavy-handed skimmer, quarter truth money dealer? Could the manager's business associates and friends, could they rely on this manager's ability to tell the truth? The story of Jesus focuses on this business manager or steward of a rich man's estate. And believe it or not, we find in the story that the manager is commended. But we never hear about the proof of the dishonesty. We never hear about why this manager is called dishonest. Instead, all we have is the information given. How did this happen? Well, no matter, because in the time of Jesus, reputation, a good reputation, was all that mattered. Gossip can be a powerful Force. Maybe this manager was dishonest, and maybe it was someone who wanted to do him in. Regardless, the damage is done, and the owner can no longer have this manager and his poor reputation connected to his estate. So the manager panics, and he decides that he can't work hard work, and he doesn't want to beg. So he begins to reduce all the debts that his master was owed so he could be welcomed into people's homes and possibly considered for his 
next job. This financial manager was used to dealing with financial capital that now that as he was about to be fired, he needed to raise social capital. When the owner of the estate learns that this manager has been forgiving the debts, he commends the manager. It's almost like if you got caught for speeding and a police officer is writing you a ticket and he says, well, I caught you speeding, but you look so good doing it. You really got some flair, right? Why would Jesus utilize a story about a possible scoundrel to illustrate a spiritual truth? Doesn't Jesus know that this manager's actions of reducing debt hurts the business and this man's estate? John Stuart Mill, English political philosopher who we base, base much of our modern-day views of governance and economics and political theory, observed some 1,700 years after Jesus this. Management by hired servants who have no interest in the result, but that of preserving their salaries is proverbially inefficient unless they act under an inspecting eye of the person chiefly invested. And prudence almost always recommends giving to a manager a remuneration partly dependent on the profits that they oversee. Indeed, it was common in the first century that managers often overcharge people for goods and services because the profit and the commission of what the manager would receive would be in the final amount. So by reducing the debts, the manager was reducing or eliminating his commission and returning the profits back to the owner. So if someone borrowed 500 gallons of olive oil, in this situation they would have to return 1,000. But in eliminating the debt, the manager reduces his commission, reduces his take, because he is set up for remuneration directly related to the profits of what the commodities bring in. In the story, both the owner and Jesus praise the manager for this action. And though the manager probably foregoes his percentage of the pay, by doing this, the manager loses money, but according to Jesus, gains the ability to be welcome into the homes of his friends and business associates so that he is not penniless on the street. To Jesus, this is very clever. To Jesus, the manager is sacrificing his immediate financial windfall of financial capital so he can build social capital later. And Jesus very quickly makes the connection that the, the fact is, is this, is just how clever the world can be with worldly goods. If people can be that clever, then the people of God can be just as clever of how they use their resources for eternal gains. I like how author and preacher Tom Long describes how Jesus is pointing us towards the act of generosity 
with our resources. And in commenting on this passage, Long says that it's not that money that's corrupt. It's the culture. And Jesus is not talking about dishonest money versus good money. Jesus says this, I wish the children of the light, I wish the people of God, I wish the people of the church were as shrewd for the gospel as the wheelers and dealers are out there. How shrewd they can be for themselves. Jesus concludes the story with this axiom that if you haven't been faithful in worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? That we cannot serve two masters, that we'll either love one and hate the other, that we cannot serve both God and wealth. Jesus gets to the heart of what his goal is in communicating and telling this parable, this story, to his disciples. Are your resources serving God and others, or are your resources only serving yourself? Just this week, someone asked how their wealth won't just serve themselves, but also for others. That after a half century of founding the outdoor country, outdoor store apparel maker, Patagonia, Von Chonard, who was a rock climber, became a reluctant billionaire with his take on providing goods for people who wanted to recreate the outdoors. That he made the decision this week to give away his company. That rather than selling the company or taking it public, Mr. Chenard, whose company has valued over $3 billion, instead designed a special trust and a nonprofit organization to oversee the company so that it will fund environmental efforts. And Patagonia isn't the only corporation thinking about this, that a group of over 75 billionaires have committed to what's called the giving pledge, that they pledge to give away at least half or more of what they have to give to charities, hospitals, and medical research. Some of them, including Warren Buffett, have agreed to give away 99% of all that they have to charity realizing that they have accumulated so much wealth that no one person or one family could ever spend so much that it, there must be a sense of good and purpose to these resources. And the giving pledge is a simple concept. It's an open invitation to millionaires and billionaires who, if it would not be for the Millions of people who give small amounts or large amounts to charities, that they take the example of millions, people of all income levels, to give generously, who make a personal sacrifice to make the world better. That's the power of generosity, leveraging resources for the good of others. 
And those who have signed the giving pledge know that their wealth cannot just serve themselves or just their families. It must serve as many other people as possible. Jesus knew that if the people of the world are so crafty and generous with what they have, then we as people of the light can be just as savvy and generous. Have you ever thought about how you use your possessions, your financial resources, your time, your talents for people to benefit from? Because generosity changes lives. It was generosity that changed my life over 50 years ago. Now, you may say, Alan, I know how you are, and I'm pretty good at math. There's no way you're 50 plus, and you're right. But over 50 years ago, generosity changed my life. Over 50 years ago, my mentor and home church senior pastor, Charlie Updike, was a 20-something-year-old seminarian student struggling to get through seminary to be trained as a pastor. And because of that, he worked the night shift at a local hotel so he could survive and barely pay his bills for tuition and for food and books. And one night, a, a guest came to the front desk and said to him, well, you know, what are you doing here? You're a young guy. You could get a, a good job. Why are you working this night shift? And he explained to the guests that he was studying in seminary, trained to be a pastor, that because of his financial situation, he had to go to school during the day and work at night, that he didn't have much to keep him going, and that he was just holding on as long as he can. He might even have to drop out if he doesn't make enough. And after the guest had chatted with my mentor, my mentor went to class the next morning, and that evening went to another day of work, and there at the front desk, he saw an envelope with his name on it, and he opened the envelope, and there was enough money to cover his tuition for the year and much more. See, that act of generosity from a stranger was able to help my mentor finish seminary, graduate, go on to mentor me and dozens of other people and thousands of other congregants in our church. But that act of generosity changed my mentor's trajectory and therefore changed my trajectory. You see, if that generosity never occurred, I might not be standing here today because my mentor would have never mentored me. I would maybe never have become a pastor if it were not for that stranger's act of generosity to help my mentor get through seminary. That stranger at a hotel a night over 50 years ago changed my life because generosity changes lives. When Jesus told a story of a dubious manager who used his wit and opportunity, Jesus communicated a profound truth that if the world can be 
smart and wise of opportunities, of debt forgiveness in order to be welcomed into other people's homes for personal benefit, then Jesus' followers can be just as smart and wise as savvy so that we, you and I, can reap heavenly rewards. The investment we make with our income, our resources, our time will pay dividends for our children, for our youth, for people down the road. Even here at church, we're sitting here today standing on the generosity of others. Because of smart and wise people in our church, we minister to children, youth, and adults. We seek to transform our community for the common good. We share Jesus' message of love and grace and redemption to people who need to hear it. There were people over 50, 60, 70 years ago who gave of themselves, some of them a few dollars a week, others thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to build this church to make sure that there was a congregation in DeWitt that would serve this community and all the surrounding communities to make sure that the generous heart of God may be known. Just this past summer here, this summer, we had our vacation Bible school, the first after two years of COVID, where we had over 50 children here in person from our community learning about the unwavering love of God. And we had 50 volunteers. That's a, almost a one-on-one volunteer-to-child ratio who gave of their mornings, some of them just a few days, some of them five days, some of them two weeks helping out to make sure that we had our vacation Bible school. During COVID, we built 20 beds with our mission partners, Sleep and Heavenly Peace, for children in our community who didn't have beds. And these quilts that are here today are going to go to some of these families on the very beds that we made by the generosity and the ministry of our cut-up ministry, these quilts will keep children warm and let them know that there's a congregation, there are people out there who care about them. And as Rick Hall shared this morning on October 2nd, our Christian Caring Ministry is going to hold a lunch about all the different ways and our mission partners that you can volunteer that you can use of your generous resources how we can serve those in need of our community why because generosity changes lives it changed my life can change your life can change the lives of everyone around this church john wesley who was the founder of the Methodist movement in Britain and the United States once said, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times that you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. May you 
join me on the journey of generosity. That just as there are people with great resources out there trying to make a difference, and they are savvy enough to figure out how do we get a package from the Amazon warehouse to your house in two days, we can be just as savvy in delivering God's good news, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of sins to our people in the pews, to people in the street, people in our community. May you be generous. May you be savvy with all that you have. That even if people can be so dishonest out there and be savvy with that, how much more can we, the people of the light, be savvy and smart so that we may build up the kingdom of God together? Let us pray. God, it's so easy for us in the story to maybe see ourselves as the estate owner. But God, in reality, we, we are just the managers, the stewards of all that you've given, that you are the divine estate owner of our lives. That God, you have given us the responsibility to be savvy and smart with the resources we have, God, we ask that this week that you can give us the strength, give us the peace in relinquishing our grip over our resources. That, God, we can be generous with our time, our talents, our resources, that just as there is generosity in the forgiveness of debts in this dishonest manager, God, how much more can we be honest in the forgiveness that we owe others? to leverage our resources, to leverage our finances, to leverage our love and our time and our talents so that your good work can change lives because, Lord, when we're generous, it can change someone's life. So, God, help us be generous this week to be the good stewards of what you've given us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.